Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. I'm glad that you've come out to worship with us. It's good to have those of you at home who are participating in this worship service. Stand with me if you would. Your love. 
You are the 
Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. We are so excited to be here and worship with you. I'm excited to be able to be here. I've not gotten to preach in front of a real audience or teach in front of a real audience. Well, I shouldn't say real. I guess you folks at home are real. But I've not gotten to teach in front of a live audience in months. Instead, I keep staring at teenagers on a computer screen, and it's just not the same. They go black, so I can't see their screen. I think they're leaving. They just want me to think that they're there. But I see you, and there's no escape. They've locked the doors to the bathrooms. You're stuck. You at home, just stay where you are. Don't move from your couch. You'll spill your coffee and have to change your pajamas. But it is good to be with you, and we are excited to be worshiping with you today. Pastor Kenny headed south with Miss Karen. They're visiting with Rebecca and the boys. They were there this past week. They'll be traveling home. So you are stuck with me. And uh, I guess that goes both ways. I'm stuck with you, right? If you can't leave, you have to be here. I do too. So we're excited about what God has. And that's what we want to hear this morning. God's heart for us and our lives and what he's called us to do and who he's called us to be. And my prayer today is that that's exactly what we'll hear. We won't just be hearers. That's exactly what we'll do as we leave this place. Let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning. God, we are so grateful to be here together. God, whether it's in this sanctuary, whether it's online, God, we are together united in our spirit and our desire to hear from you, to see your heart, to have what we hear affect our hearts and inspire us, encourage us, admonish us to be the people that you've called us to be. And so, God, as we hear your word today, as we sing your praise, make us tangibly aware of your presence and your activity in our hearts and our minds, so that, God, we will continue to be the people that you've created us to be. It's in your Son's name we pray together this morning. Amen. Amen. Let's strive this morning to make our worship all about God. Let's take all of our thoughts and the problems of the world and the personal things and put them aside. Let's let God be the one that we worship this morning. Let's let God be the one that we think on this morning. When the music fades, all is stripped away, and I simply come. Longing just to bring something that's a word that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song, for a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within Through the way things appear You're looking into my heart I'm coming back to the heart of worship And it's all about you It's all about you, Jesus I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, but it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. 
I'm still trying to reconnect down here. Technology is wonderful until it doesn't work. Amen. Um, so the remote control that I have for my slides is not wanting to cooperate uh, since the computer reset. Um, hopefully we'll be going here again in just a second. If not, Justin's just going to have to be psychic and know where I'm headed and when I'm headed there. Or like I told him in the early service, I'm just going to start snapping at him and pointing. So it's, that's what you see. That's what's going on. But we are going to be together this morning in looking at a story that you've heard many, many, many times. It's a big fish story, only it's not so much about the one that got away as it is about the one who's doing the fishing. And so we're looking today at Jonah, relentless pursuit. We're looking at this idea of God's relentless pursuit of sinners in that he's not just about pursuing you until you come into relationship with him. But he's constantly pursuing us because he's always looking to get all of us. He's not satisfied for us just to bite and to get us in the boat. No, he wants all of us. And he continues to pursue and continues to pursue and continues to pursue, no matter what stage we find ourselves in in our journey with him. And so today, as we look at this story that I'm sure you're very familiar with, even from your childhood, we're going to be looking at not just ourselves in the story, but we're going to be looking at the heart of God because it's really what we're after today, to know and to understand the heart of God in pursuit of people, especially in pursuit of sinners. And so as we look in this story, we're going to see ourselves in a couple of different characters. Begin with me in chapter 1 and verse 1 where we're going to find our, our first two characters. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. We see our two main characters here, and if you're following along, there are your first two blanks. You'll notice that the first character that we're talking about today is the Assyrians. The Assyrians. I know it doesn't say Assyria anywhere, but Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. 
It was an ancient city. We find it first mentioned being built way back in the book of Genesis. And after it was built there in what we refer to as the first Assyrian Empire, it, it was settled and founded by the descendants of Asher. If you're reading through the genealogy of Noah and that family, you'll remember that Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Asher was one of the sons of Shem. So that's who began this kingdom. It was later taken over by the Akkadians and then consequently taken back centuries later by the Assyrians. And we refer to that as the Neo-Assyrian Empire. The Neo-Assyrian Empire was the one that we're looking at today at the time of the story. It was one of the largest, most powerful military empires of its day. A great expanse throughout the Middle East. They had military innovation that exceeded that of their neighboring city-states and kingdoms. So they were very, very well equipped to make war and to conquer and to take territory. But not only did they have the military prowess and innovation to do that, but they also were very cruel and very ruthless. And they used that as a form of psychological warfare. One of the easiest ways to conquer people is to conquer them before you ever get there. And they were masters at that art of psychological warfare. In fact, as we excavate in that area and we find ruins of the Assyrian Empire and and fragments of things left behind, very rarely do we find anything written that doesn't pertain to their military conquests and exploits, especially what they would do with the people who were conquered and their prisoners of war. In fact, more than anything else that we find in archaeological excavation of the Assyrian Empire are picture depictions on temples palaces, stellas that would be erected in the centers of cities, showing very graphically what they would do to these people that they conquered and their prisoners of war. And they would leave those there as a reminder of what it meant to stand against the Assyrian king and the absolute power that he believed that he had. There was a lot of mutilation and dismemberment of people. They would flay their captives alive out in the field and then drape their skins over the piles of bodies that they would leave behind. Outside cities that would be conquered, they would erect pikes, and if they didn't impale headless victims there, they would impale seven or eight heads of their conquered there at the gates of the cities. Fear of the Assyrian people was so great that as they would begin marching toward another city or a city-state, the kings and the nobles of that region would come out and bow down and offer their lives to the king of Assyria so that he might would spare the people. Very rarely did that happen. Usually the men of war age would be ruthlessly tortured and killed and the women and children would be taken captive and led away. Sometimes entire cities were decimated, everyone inside. So the fear of the Assyrians was great. The sin of the Assyrians was great. And we have no reason to believe that it was just their reputation. But it was the reality of the way that they waged war. And so this is the people. This is the people that we see when we're referring to Nineveh. This is the thought that's going on in our next character's head. We see the prophet Jonah. Because God calls him to leave Israel and go and preach God's judgment to the people of Nineveh, to this Assyrian kingdom. We know very little about Jonah. 
other than what we find here in verse 1, who his father is and the fact that he is an Israelite and a prophet at that, we, we know very little about him. Only things that we can begin to infer about his character through the things that we read. But first of all, we know that he had a knowledge of God. We know that he had a knowledge of God. If he was called by God as a prophet, a mouthpiece of God, to go and carry God's message, he had to have a good understanding and knowledge of who God was. He had to have a good understanding of who it was that was sending him and what that message really was. But beyond just his knowledge of God, we see that he also had a deep faith in God. And not just in God's existence, but in God's character and God's power and God's ability. You know the story. I'm not giving away anything. I'm not spoiling anything for you. But as we read on in the story and Jonah goes and preaches in Nineveh and the people repent and God saves them mercifully, we know that Jonah rails against God and we, we read this. He says, this is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah says, I know you so well. And I believe in your mercy. I believe in your grace. I've seen it in my life. I've seen the way that you've imparted grace, not only to me personally, but also your people, Israel. And I know your power. I know that you're able to do anything. You could bring total and utter destruction on the city of Nineveh, but you could also spare it completely. And that's why I didn't want to go, because I knew that's what you do. I know you so well. And you see, Jonah had this faith in God, but he had this national sense of pride that, that got in the way. The reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh, the reason that he didn't want God to pour out this mercy in a powerful way that he knew that he could do is because he didn't believe that these people deserved it. They weren't Israel. They weren't God's chosen people. They weren't special. They couldn't claim a lineage from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. They had never worshipped God. They had never been to Jerusalem. They had never offered him sacrifice. They had never sung his praise. Why did they deserve God's mercy? See, he looked at those people for the atrocities that he had heard about. He looked at those people for the way they were oppressing his countrymen on the fringes of the nation. He looked at those people from all the things that he had read about them on his social media accounts. He, he looked at those people from all the stories that he had heard from somebody who had heard from their cousin's boyfriend's sister's mom. You know, those, he knows exactly what those people are like. And if you'll allow me to trace, chase a rabbit here for just a moment, we've got to get that phrase, those people, out of our vocabulary. See, it's rooted in this deep seat of, of tribalism that we hold on to. We desire for God to bless us and anyone like us. We, we want God to save our friends and family who are like us. We want to bring people into our fellowship who are like us and won't upset the status quo. They're not going to take our seat when they come into the sanctuary. They're not, they're not going to want to sing other songs that don't sound like the ones that we like to sing. 
They're, they're not going to try to introduce something new into the flow of our worship service that we're not used to. They're, they're not going to shout and clap their hands because, because we don't really feel comfortable doing that. They're not going to do... See, we find ourselves always looking for people just like us. We, we want things to stay the same. But it extends even beyond our churches. It, it extends to the way we do missions. It extends to the way we, we do service. It extends to our idea and our understanding of justice. It, it informs so much of who we are and the decisions that we make and the way we interact with people that we come in contact with in the world every day. I'm sure they're nice enough. I'm sure they're good enough. But those aren't my people. Those are those people. Instead, we need to replace that phrase biblically with the way Jesus referred to those people. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan? Instead of calling them those people, what did he call them? Neighbors. And see, if we would get rid of those people in our vocabulary and replace it by neighbor, if Jonah could have done the same thing, things would look very different. Because instead of those people doing all these things that I don't agree with and how terrible that is, those are my neighbors doing that. I've got to say something to my neighbors. I've got to share the truth with my neighbors. I've got to model Christ's love to my neighbors. I need to reach my neighbors for the kingdom. Because I don't want my neighbors to die lost and spend an eternity separated from God. I want my neighbors to be there with me in eternity. As Jesus taught, there's not those people. They're all our neighbors. But Jonah held on to this deep sense of national pride. Israel is God's chosen people. Israel is the only one worthy to know God and have a relationship with Him. And it betrayed him. In the, read this quote with me. In a mission-minded community, the highest value isn't self-preservation, but self-sacrifice. Again, in a mission-minded community, the highest value isn't self-preservation, to keep things the way they are and to keep it us and ours. But, but the highest value should be self-sacrifice. I'm willing to lay down everything about me that's peripheral only to hold on to the core of the truth of Jesus Christ and his work in my life so that others can know that work in their lives. You see, it betrays Jonah because he's very self-centered. He's very self-centered. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to sacrifice anything of himself. He doesn't want it to cost him anything to go to them. Because it's not going to benefit him. It's not going to benefit his nation. And what he's failing to realize is it would be every benefit to his kingdom. You see, Jonah's not thinking about his kingdom. He's thinking about his world. So Jonah's very self-centered. And he's not willing to sacrifice self-preservation on the altar for the sake of self-sacrifice for the glory of the kingdom. And to be honest, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh because he's vengeful. He's a vengeful person. He's heard about the things that Assyria has done. 
He sees the way they're conquering nation and city after city. He knows that they're coming for Israel. And rather than God intervene by bringing Nineveh into the kingdom, He wants God to intervene by giving them exactly what they deserve. Those people are a bunch of sinners. Those people deserve fireballs from heaven. Those people deserve for the earth to open up and swallow their whole city. He's a very vengeful person. So Jonah doesn't want to go. And that leads to this idea that while Jonah had a knowledge of God, We can know God's heart and not have God's heart. See, Jonah had this tremendous knowledge and tremendous faith of God. But those other characteristics we looked at betrayed him. He knows of God's heart, but he doesn't have God's heart. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves in the same boat. We we can know God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. We can know that. We can believe that. We can think it's great as far as the way it's applied to us. But when we look at the world, do we look at the world with the heart that said, I so love the world that I'll send my only begotten son. Self-sacrifice. Just because we know God's heart doesn't mean we have God's heart. Keep that in mind as we continue along today. So what does this guy who has a knowledge of God but no heart of God do whenever God calls him to go and bring the message of repentance and mercy to his enemy? Well, Jonah rises up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Three times the city of Tarshish is named here in this passage. We know that three is a form of emphasis in the Bible. Why has the name of Tarshish been emphasized in this verse? Because anyone who had any understanding at this time of the geography of Israel and its known world would realize that Tarshish was as far away from Nineveh and Israel as you could possibly go. And where was God's house? Where was the temple? It was there in Jerusalem. And if God was going to meet with man and do business with him in Jerusalem, if that's where God was, if that's where God was going to speak, if that's where God was going to give His will and His direction, then Jonah wanted to be as far away from there as he could possibly go. Because he didn't want to let go of his heart. Have the heart of God. And yet, you've heard the phrase, you can't outrun God. You all ever heard that phrase? Anybody? Yeah, what, what does it usually bring to mind when you hear that phrase, you can't outrun God? Most of the time when we hear it, we think about the fact that if we're in sin and if we're not being obedient to God, we're going to get exactly what we deserve. 
We can run and run and run and run and try to escape the consequences, but in the end, it's going to catch up to us. When we hear that phrase, you can't outrun God, that's kind of like our way of saying Christian karma. You're going to get what's coming to you. And there's no escape it. So you might as well just give in and give up and just take your whooping and then go on about it, right? That's what we think of. It's kind of like when you were young and your mama gave you a, you know, the option to go pick your own switch, right? You got in trouble. And that one time you went and got your own switch, but you got the bright idea for some reason that instead of taking the whooping, you were going to run from mama. You ever understood how long your mama's arms are when they're holding the switch? Or how she has a gear that even NFL wide receivers don't have when you're running from mama, right? You're going to get yours. That's, that's what we think of. Except when we hear that phrase, you can't outrun God, we need to not think about the wrath that's coming to us. Instead, what we need to realize is you can't outrun God's relentless, merciful pursuit of you into a relationship for Him, with Him. We were created for this. And that's His desire for us. And He will go to any length and hold back nothing to pursue us and to woo us into that relationship with him. And so we see that. As Jonah flees, we begin this story of God's relentless pursuit. Only Jonah's fleeing isn't the beginning of God's pursuit. No, there's something here that we take for granted and something that we don't realize that's going on even in our lives today as God is pursuing us. See, he doesn't just pursue unbelievers. God is pursuing those of us who have already professed our faith in him. Those of us who claim him as Lord. God is pursuing us because like we said before, God's not happy and satisfied just because we're in the boat. No, God wants all of us. He's pursuing all of us. And so one of the things we see is God's pursuit of us in our daily bread. I know, it's a horrible, horrible subpoint. I get it. But everything else had a D. Today's sermon is brought to you by the letter D, for those of you who grew up on Sesame Street. And this is the only D that I could come up with that even came close to expressing what I was going to do. And if I'm a good Southern Baptist pastor, I alliterate every point, right? So, this is our D. But it, it really does fit perfectly if you understand what Jesus was teaching his disciples there in his model prayer. When he gets to the point of daily bread, think, think about this prayer with me. You all know this. You, you recited it so many times. Actually, if I put you on the spot, you probably won't be able to tell me. So we're going to recite it together, okay? Give us, Lord, our daily bread. You, you aren't reciting with me. And you at home, you need to be louder. I can't hear you, okay? Give us, Lord, our daily bread and forgive us our... Depending on what translation, it's sins or trespasses, right? As we forgive those who against us, okay? And... Lead us not into temptation. Now think about that right there. We're asking in that prayer for God to do three very specific things. And most of the time when we think about it, we think about it as one, meeting our physical needs. And then the other two are spiritual things, right? We've already mentioned this number one time though, and if you've been following along in Pastor Kenny's series on Revelation, you know that numbers are incredibly important. And two is not a number that shows up in the Bible very often. What number very close to two shows up all the time? So let's stop and think about these three very specific things God was asking us to ask him to do in our lives in the model prayer and think about them all as spiritual things. We're asking God to forgive us our sins, a spiritual thing. We're asking him not to lead us in temptation, a spiritual thing. But what about this idea of daily bread? Certainly God provides for our 
physical needs. And he tells us we don't need to worry about those physical needs. He tells us that he knows our needs before we ever even ask him for anything, and that if he takes care of the birds and the flowers of the fields, then certainly he's going to take care of us. But think about this idea of daily bread. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. David talks about finding life and finding sustenance in God's commands and statutes and law. Think about this for a moment. When we're asking God to give us our daily bread, what we're really asking him to do is to provide for us direction and our delights. We're to delight in the Lord. In fact, David says in the Psalms over and over and over and over again, not only does he find delight in the Lord, but he finds delight in his law. He finds delight in praising him. He finds delight in going to his temple. He finds delight with the Lord in every aspect of his life. And that's what God is calling us to. When he's pursuing us in our daily bread, what that means is he's basically each and every day, not only waking us up and giving us these blessings that we take for granted day in and day out, but he's giving us every day direction. And every day he's giving us our delights, the desires of our heart, especially when our heart is intertwined with his. And see, God is pursuing us deeper and deeper and deeper into this relationship with him day in and day out. Just in that little time that we spend with him, those little things that he does that so often go unnoticed by us. It's those little things in the marriage that keep that marriage fresh and alive. Date night's not only on your anniversary, right? That's not the only time you give her flowers, right? My wife's sitting back there, yeah, listen to yourself a couple of times when you get home. But right, there's those little things that you have to do. There's those little things like you know she's not going to have any clue where her phone is in about 10 minutes because she's laid it down somewhere and then walked into another room. What do you do? Take it, put it on the nightstand because that's where it should be, right? Or, you know, while he's at work and you know his week's busy, you mow the front yard. Even though you know he's going to fuss and act like he didn't really want you to do it, he's really relieved that you did because that takes the burden off, right? It's those little things that you do for each other, those little things, those little expressions. In our relationship with Christ, that's our daily bread. He provides us direction and those delights, those desires of our hearts, and woos us deeper into that relationship with him. Only if we're thick-headed like Jonah, and we refuse to be gracious for those things, we, we become really, really entrenched in this mindset of, I am special, I am one of God's chosen. He has to do those things. He has to give me those things. Then we begin to take them for granted. And instead of being wooed deeper and deeper into this relationship, we're out of gratitude. We do anything that he calls us to do because what did Jesus say? If you love me, you'll do what? Obey my commands. So God calls Jonah to do something. He calls Jonah out of the boat. He calls him out of his comfort zone to go and to do something for him. And what does Jonah do? He disobeys. 
Yet even in Jonah's disobedience, God still is pursuing him relentlessly. And when we find ourselves in those times where we're running from God, when we're completely running the opposite direction, we know exactly what he's wanting us to do. When we're justifying everything that we're doing to ourselves and making it sound really super spiritual, God is still pursuing us. When we've run so far in our disobedience, we're not even pretending. We're not even trying to justify it to ourselves anymore. We just don't want to be reminded. We just want to forget about this relationship that we've got with God anyway because it hurts when we think about it. God is still pursuing us. In the midst of our disobedience, the way he pursues us is this. It's twofold. It's discipline and it's disaster. God will continue to discipline us all along the way. And we run and we run and the discipline continues and we run and we run. And the discipline doesn't seem like much like mercy or grace. It seems like God's wrath being poured out on the sin in our lives. And we get really resentful that he's even doing it, but we know we deserve it. So we can't really fuss with God and fight with God about it. And yet it just seems like he's bringing the hammer down on us time and time again. And yet what he's doing is relentlessly and lovingly and mercifully pursuing us instead of just letting us run without ever giving him a second thought. It's a constant reminder that he's there. And we run and we run and we run until we get to the point where God allows or brings disaster into our lives. We hit rock bottom. And it looks like all hope is lost. But that disaster is a form of his pursuit of us. God put consequences for sin in our world so that when we run as hard as we can away from him and we slam into that wall of sin, it wakes us up and we realize what we're doing. Only we're hard-headed and we continue to climb the wall and look for a way around it so we can run until we hit the next one. That's exactly where Jonah finds himself. He gets on the ship headed toward Tarshish and a huge storm blows up. We're talking the perfect storm. We're talking a storm where these guys who are professional marine time merchants are willing to lose all the money for this cargo by chucking it overboard just to save their own lives. And even then, they realize it's not going to do anything. All hope is lost. And by some pagan idea or pagan influence that they had there on that ship, they decide someone must have made the gods angry and that someone needs to be sacrificed to appease the gods. And as they cast lots and the lot falls on Jonah, Jonah fesses up and he says, I serve the one true creator God of the universe, the one who controls this storm and the winds and the waves. And yes, I have sinned, I'm running for him. And now it's time for me to take my just punishment. There's no need for you all to lose your lives for my sake. Take me and throw me overboard. Jonah finds himself in, himself in the midst of this discipline and now disaster. As it says, he's sitting there with his head barely bobbing above the waves until the seaweed wraps around his legs and eventually he's pulled under. And there we find Jonah in his deepest darkness. If, if you look in verse 2 and look at the wording that he uses there, he, he talks about the foundations or the foot of the mountain is where he finds himself at the bottom of the sea. And he talks about God raving him up from the pit. Both of those are phrases that were used by the Israelites to refer to hell. 
and not just a figurative things are really bad type of hell, but literally hell. Whether Jonah actually dies at the bottom of the ocean or whether he is at that point where his life is leaving his body whenever God scoops in and the next thing Jonah knows is he wakes up conscious inside the fish, we don't know. But the way Jonah describes it, as far as he's concerned, he's dead. And God brings him back. Can you get any deeper and darker than dead? Separated from God at the bottom of the ocean? When we find ourselves at rock bottom, which is where our running from God has gotten us, and yet God still is pursuing that relationship with us, calling us back to go deeper and deeper with Him. And when we find ourselves here in the deepest darkness, how how does God call us back to Himself? With deliverance. With deliverance. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Then Jonah prays to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish. And this is what he says. I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and he heard my voice. God delivers. Jonah ran as far as he could possibly run. And he comes to the realization he cannot outrun God's grace and mercy. And so he cries out to the Lord because he's his only hope. He's tried everything that he could try, and he realizes that any other attempt is futile. So he finally submits and calls out to the Lord. How do we know he submits? Well, look at what he goes on to say. But with the voice of thanksgiving, I'll sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. What I have vowed, I will pay. Jonah submits to God's plan. You say, well, we didn't see him take a vow. He's probably referring here to the vow that he would have taken as he became a prophet of God. As he vowed to be his mouthpiece and to speak exactly what God told him to speak when God told him to speak it. Only when he took that vow originally, he just always thought it was going to be to Israel. He was going to be speaking to God's people. Now he realizes he's going to make good on this vow to speak God's word in God's time to God's audience. So Jonah promises to keep his vow. But that brings him to the very interesting place in his spiritual journey. Because God causes the fish to vomit him out on the shore. He makes his way to Nineveh. And he goes on to preach in Nineveh the message that God has called him to preach. In fact, it takes him three days to walk the entire city to make sure that everyone is heard. You say, well, that's an exaggeration. No, as they've excavated the site of ancient Nineveh, they've realized that the area encompassed by the walls of the city would have taken three days to walk and cover all of the territory within the walls. The Bible's very literal. Very truthful. It takes Jonah three days to go and to preach this message. Is he happy about it? No. And and that brings us to this place where we find God's pursuit of us in our dutiful dedication. And, And this is the razor's edge right here. 
Because in the fish, we see Jonah proclaiming the wonders of God's salvation and his mercy and vowing out of that gratitude to do whatever God has called him to do. How long does that attitude last? I mean, we find ourselves in this place. God does something amazing in our life. Maybe he delivers us or heals us or maybe he heals a relative or he brings us through some circumstance where we realize we very easily could have left this world and God somehow intervened and brought us through that. Or maybe we find ourselves in the midst of some kind of financial calamity and God provides in a way that we never saw coming. And we declare the mercies of the Lord and how amazing he is. And we say we're never going to take for granted again what he's done in our life and we're going to be on fire for him and we're going to do everything and we're telling everybody about it, how awesome God is for two weeks, two months. And then we're right back to where we were before and everything's the same, nothing changes. We've seen it personally, we've seen it nationally. Look at our nation in the days and the months following 9-11. Where are we now? How long did that last? We, we saw it all through the book of Judges in Israel, right? God would deliver them in amazing ways and that generation would be on fire for God, but they wouldn't teach their own kids about all the great things that God did and what would happen. They'd fall away until you ended up with a third generation who didn't even recognize God anymore and the same thing would happen again. That's the way we do. That's the way we do. We get all fired up about this great thing God did in our life, but very quickly we forget that we vowed to do these things, not because we had to, because we wanted to because he deserved it for what he had done for us. And as Jonah's in the fish, he's all about doing this because God saved him from certain death and gave him a second chance. But as he's walking around Nineveh for three days, seeing the sights and those people, he's reminded of why he didn't want to go in the first place. Because he made a vow. He's going to keep it. So whether he likes it or not, he's going to preach to these people. And we find ourselves there, right, in our lives. God, I, I know I told you I was going to give this up. God, I know I told you that I was going to let go of this relationship. God, I know I told you I was willing to move my family. God, I know I told you that I was willing to take this job. God, I know I told you that I was going to do, but now we regret it. But we did it. And we're going to stick with it because we're a person of our word. We told God we would. We're not, we're not going to go back on that now. We're not going to break a vow to God. But we're going to grit our teeth and hate every minute of it. Does that please God? No, because he looks at our attitude. He looks at our heart. And when we find ourselves in this place of dutiful dedication, there's two ways this can go. Because you see what God wants to do is let us participate with him in divine celebration. What's the Bible say as Jesus is talking about that sheep who was lost? He leaves the 99 and goes and finds the one. And what happens whenever he gets back with the one? He calls together all of his friends, and there's a great party and celebration because the one who was lost was found. And he says, so it is in the kingdom. When even one sinner comes home, there's a huge party. And all the angels celebrate with him. And when we have God's heart and pursue his mission in our lives for the glory of the kingdom, we have the opportunity as we're dutiful 
and dedicated to do the things that he's created us to do, to participate with him in this divine celebration. And that could have been Jonah's attitude as he sees what ends up happening. I mean, look, as he preaches to the king what God is going to do in the coming wrath if they don't repent, it says, The king issues a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God because he's listened to Jonah's message about God's mercy and grace. And so he draws this conclusion. He says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. And who knows? Maybe exactly what Jonah was telling us is true. God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Can you imagine that Jonah goes not to some small little town in the Midwest, not not to some little homestead somewhere in Idaho or Montana and sees that whole clan come to Jesus and and hope that it's going to trickle up and change a nation. No, Jonah goes into Washington, D.C., walks into the Senate chambers, preaches a message of impending wrath, repentance, and the possibility of mercy from God. And the president stands up. Because he's absolutely right. We've all sinned. We're all wrong. We've all got to make some major changes. We need to repent and fall on our knees before God. And maybe, just maybe, we'll change the course of this country. And then it trickles down from the top. That's that's what Jonah is actually getting to experience. That's literally what is happening and what God is doing. But how does Jonah react to that? Because instead of divine celebration that God has for Jonah, look, look at what actually is coming. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Didn't I tell you I didn't want to go to Tarshish because I knew this is exactly what you were going to do? And now you've gone and done it. And so what does he do? He goes out on a hill outside the city, and he's hoping that even though the king has called these people to repentance, that God has already said, it's too late. My wrath is already coming. He wants to see the fireballs from heaven. He wants to see the earth open up and swallow this city and all of its inhabitants whole. So he sets up on this hill outside the city to watch the wrath come. And it doesn't. Instead, he sets up there and he stews in his anger. The sun comes out and starts to beat on him, and he gets incredibly hot and miserable. So what does God do? Still pursuing. Causes a plant to grow up and gorge. And it gives Jonah a little bit of shade from the sun. The next day, the plant's withered and dead, so he has no more shade. He sat up there all day and all night and still the next day, hoping that God was going to wipe these people out. And then he's mad because the plant withered and died. So what does he say? Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. 
Instead of participating with God in this divine celebration, Jonah chooses disillusionment and disappointment. He's upset that God didn't do things the way he wanted him to do them. We've never done that, have we? We've never complained to God. We've never been mad. We've never gritted our teeth. We've never fumed. We've never said those words under our breath because God can't hear those, right? About the way he chose to do things and the way he was doing things in our lives. And why did he do this instead of this? And why did he give this person this? And he could have given that to me. They never asked for it. I did. We never get disillusioned or disappointed with the way God's working in our lives, do we? And yet, whenever Jonah went that direction, instead of participating with God in this divine celebration, we find Jonah in a deep depression. God, just kill me. It's better for me to not even live. Yet, in this state of depression, we find God pursuing us. How? Well, he gives us discernment. He wants us to see things through his eyes. To really not just know his heart, but to have his heart. To feel his heart. And then he calls us to decision. When he's shown us things through his eyes, he tells us, now you've got to make a decision. Look at at what he says to Jonah here. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I... Pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left? Jonah, you are so mad that you just want to curse me and die because this plant that you didn't plant, this plant that you didn't fertilize, this plant that you didn't water, this plant that you didn't weed and care for grew up and died in a day. It's a plant. Now, I know some of you all love your plants, and you talk to your plants, and you take better care of your plants than you do yourself. God said you're weird, right? It's just a plant. Jonah is so upset with this plant. And God says, now, let me give you some discernment. Look at things through my eyes for a minute. I told you Nineveh was a big city. It took three days to walk the whole city. There's more than 120,000 people that lived in Nineveh. What is this number? Notice what it says. These are 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left. These are the innocents. These aren't the men of war. These aren't the people who've committed all these atrocities that has Jonah so upset. God is saying, forget about even them for just a minute. I know you want them to die. I know you want vengeance for all the atrocities that they've committed. He said, but what about the 120,000 innocents who live in this city who've never lifted a finger in the land? The children. What what about all of these people that I created? You're so upset that that plant died that you had nothing to do with. I personally, individually, singularly created every one of not just everybody in that city, but especially these 120,000 innocents. I gave a purpose and a plan for their life. I said they have something that they need to do for my kingdom. I sent you to win them so they could fulfill their plan. What about them? Go outside that 120,000, Jonah. All these men of war that have done these terrible things that you are railing against. Yes, they're awful. But Jonah, I created them too. I created them for a reason and a purpose and a plan. And they're not fulfilling it right now. 
because they don't have a clue what that even means. They don't know me. In order for them to quit doing those things and do the things that I created them to do, someone has to tell them. What about them? Should I destroy the entire city? And he's calling Jonah from his high point where he's looking and waiting for the destruction of the city to look at the city through his eyes and to not just know his heart, but begin to let that heart be in him for those people. Yes, those people had been told about God's coming wrath, and yes, those people had repented. But isn't there more they need to know? Jonah, doesn't someone need to stay and teach them my law and what it means to follow me and be my people and be in relationship with me? Jonah, doesn't someone need to plant a church there and begin to tell them what it looks like to walk with me daily? Jonah, I need you to have my heart. We don't know what God's plan for Jonah was next. Jonah could have been like Paul. He could have been an itinerant traveling church planner. And he could have been in Nineveh a couple years till he got things going there, and God could have called him on to the next one. But God leaves him with this question. And we never see Jonah's answer. Really, what he's asking is, Jonah, why are you still running? Why are you running? I pursued you daily. I pursued you in your disobedience. I pursued you in your deepest darkness. I pursued you when you were doing things out of sheer grit and determination and your heart wasn't in at all. You were just dutifully doing your deeds that you had dedicated yourself to. Now, Jonah, I'm pursuing you in your depression. The question is, why are you still running? When are you going to get my heart? Not just know my heart, but when are you going to have my heart? I don't want you just to be my voice. I want you to be my ambassador. I want you to be me to these people. Jonah, why are you running? Why are you running? That slide doesn't want to come up. I don't know if you could click it up there. It's... What's interesting about this story of Jonah is that if you are a good, traditional Jewish family, every year on the Day of Atonement, you read all four chapters. Now, why on the Day of Atonement would you not read from Exodus or anything? Why, why Jonah on the Day of Atonement? Well, if you ask any Jewish rabbi why, you'll get one of probably three or four answers. The most popular of which is this. We read the book of Jonah to be reminded that if God can show mercy on those people through all of the atrocious sin that they committed, then God can show mercy to us. Wow. 
hear the attitude in that? If God can save those people from all the horrible, hideous, awful, vile, evil things that they did, then us, who are God's chosen people and have just done a few little things that we don't even need to mention, surely he can save us. Do you ever adopt that attitude? You, you see, we look at this story and, and we say, like they do, at the end of the Yom Kippur observance, after, after they read the book of Jonah, it's late in the day, it's one of the last things they do. They read the book of Jonah and then all together they repeat, we are Jonah. We are and they're right. We are Jonah. I hope you've seen that throughout the day today. God isn't just pursuing Jonah, but he's pursuing us as we find ourselves in all these different stages of our spiritual journey. But you know what? They've forgotten. You know where that attitude comes from? That if God can save those people, then surely he can forgive us. You know where that attitude comes from? They've forgotten that they're not just Jonah, but we are Nineveh. We are. Every one of us. That's how we began. That's how Israel began. That's how Jonah began. We are Nineveh. We are so ignorant. We don't know what our right hand is doing from what our left hand is doing spiritually. We have no clue. We are so completely lost and blinded in our sin. We don't even know that we're in sin. And God sent his messenger with a message of truth and repentance and mercy and he was plunged into the sea of God's wrath where he was swallowed up in death for three days and three nights for God to miraculously intervene and send him on to the people that needed to hear the message to complete the mission so that repentance could be preached, so that sinners could repent and come to a knowledge of God and saving faith in him. We are Nineveh. And if we forget that, if we forget that when we started, we were those people, we'll never, we'll never understand the true heart of God. We'll never experience it beating in us. We might know the heart of God. We might understand everything that I said in this story today. But knowing is not the same as having it. And if we forget what God brought us out of, if we forget what God delivered us from, then we forget that we were no more worthy of it than they are. And it's not those people, it's my neighbor who needs to know what God did in my life. It's my neighbor who needs to see the heart of God beating in me so that it can begin to beat in them. So just like Jonah, God, ask us this question. Go on to the next one. Why are you running? Why are you continuing to run? I don't know what stage you're in in your spiritual path with God right now. Maybe, maybe you're in that point where you're disillusioned and disappointed and you're verging on depression. Maybe you're just dutifully doing what it is you vowed to do. You hate it, you're not unhappy, you don't enjoy it, you're finding no delight in it, but you told God you were going to do it, so by golly, you're going to do it. Maybe you're just taking for granted all of the daily things that God is doing, wooing you and keeping you fresh in that relationship with Him. The question is, why are you running? 
God is relentlessly pursuing all of you. Not all of you, but all of you. But why are you continuing to run away? And so like Jonah, he presents that question to us today. When are you going to let me have you? And when are you going to have my heart? I'm going to have Terry come and play just for a moment. And I want you to think as she's playing about where you are today. I'm not even going to ask you to stand. Where you're seated right now, you could just bow your head. If you need to take a knee, you can right where you are. If you need to come forward, come forward. If you want to come and pray, come and pray. But where are you right now and why are you running? God so desperately desires not just a relationship with you, but a deep, personal, intimate relationship with you where you're participating with Him in pursuing others. A camp this past summer, the, the camp pastor used this expression. He said, pursued people pursue people. Pursued people pursue people. I think sometimes we're not pursuing people because we forget that God is pursuing us. And yet that's how God pursues sinners, by continuing to pursue us and our heart, every aspect, every attitude, every thought, every action that we have. He wants his heartbeat to beat through it. And in doing so, we have the opportunity to participate with him in this divine celebration as we see him working and we see people coming back into or maybe into for the first time that relationship with him. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe today is the day that you realize, like Nineveh, God has gone to extraordinary measures to send his messenger, to send his son his only begotten son, to come and to deliver to you this message that in your sin you are eternally separated from God. But he took God's wrath for you on the cross. And in doing so, made it way possible. If you'll but believe and give your life to him, that you can have that relationship that was broken by sin restored again you can participate with him in pursuing others. Maybe today's the day that you're realizing that and right there, right where you are, you need to just say, God, I surrender. Like Jonah said, salvation is from the Lord. And out of my gratitude, not out of my obligation, but out of my gratitude, I'll obey and today may be the first step in that journey as you begin pursuing others. We pray that you continue daily to appreciate those ways that he woos you deeper into relationship with him. And you don't find yourself like Jonah taking those steps toward disobedience, discipline, disaster, finally hitting rock bottom. 
But instead, your journey with him, your relationship with him will continue to be one that climbs and climbs and climbs and climbs as you grow ever more in love and intertwined with him and his heart. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for an opportunity to get into your word, to hear your heart. And God, I pray as we leave here, we are people who are committed to not just knowing your heart, but to having your heart. God, I pray as we walk out of these doors today that, Father, we won't see before us those people. But, God, we'll see our neighbors. We'll see people that you're pursuing, and because you pursued us, God, we'll step out of our comfort zones. We'll sacrifice our self-preservation, and, God, we'll do whatever it takes to pursue God, that we will be agents of yours, that we'll be your messenger of your heart. It's in your son's name we pray today. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you at home for joining us online. And I do pray that we'll take this message to heart today. And as we get out of here, we'll be the people that God's calling us to be. We'll be people who his heart shines through brightly as we're those lights and salt to the world. God bless you. We'll see you next Sunday. As a reminder, we'll leave the way we have been. Um, I don't know. It doesn't sound like it's still raining, so feel free to congregate out toward the parking lot. But uh, God bless you. We'll see you next week.